Ephesians today, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're continuing through the text today. And um, last week we talked about, or rather we talked about anger last week, Paul did. It's in the context of him saying this is what it's going to look like. When an individual that is a believer is putting on the new nature. When a Christian is walking in um, the new self. This is what it's going to look like. And he gives five specific examples. He talked about being a person of truthfulness. And he talked about uh, being angry but not sinning in your anger. So I'll read that for us. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24. Uh, Paul says, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He said, Therefore, putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. And then he spoke what we talked about last week, the beginning of verse 26. Paul says, be angry, that's a command, be angry and do not sin. And church, last week we talked about how there are some times where anger is an appropriate response for us. There are times when anger is the righteous and holy and justifiable response, but that anger can become sinful. The people that are walking in the new nature get angry, but they do it in the right way. And in two ways uh, our anger can become sinful. One is you can sin in your motivation for your anger. We talked about that last week. That a lot of times um, we get angry, but we're getting angry for a self-centered reason. We're getting angry for a self-motivated reason. Something happens... And we get angry because of a self-motivated reason. The second way that a a person's righteous anger can become sinful is just in that. That it's a righteous anger. It starts off as a holy anger. But then in our response to that anger, we sin. And that's what we looked at last week. Now, Paul um, makes a statement. Be angry and do not sin. But then he gives a very specific example of how you can sin in response to your anger. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I kind of skipped over it last week, but there's too much there. And so we're going to hit it today. It's um, specifically one of the ways that we can avoid sinning in response to our anger. Let's read it in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Okay, that's what we looked at last week. And then he makes a statement. He says, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying one of the ways that your righteous anger can become sinful, church, is when you let the sun go down on that anger. Now, a lot of people over the years, including myself earlier on in my life, interpreted that verse literally to mean that if you're in an argument with somebody, or if you're in a conflict with somebody, that you basically have to physically stay awake until you, you can't go to sleep until you're reconciled. A lot of people have uh, translated that verse to mean that. I remember it was in my premarital counseling. The pastor told us, never go to bed angry. Now, I want to tell you today that that's not really what the verse is saying. There's a couple, and a couple reasons why I believe that. Number one is the language. Just bring that back up, that verse, uh, verse 26. The language that Paul uses here. Look at the first word, Tommy says angry here. It says, be angry and do not sin. That word in the Greek, which is the language the New Testament was written in, is the Greek word orgizmo, and it means just anger. It is what it is. It just means anger. But then interestingly, when he goes on and says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, that second time that he uses the word anger is a completely different word in the Greek. It's this paragizmos, and it means prolonged anger. It's a completely different word. It means prolonged anger. 
It means anger that has its heels dug in. Okay, so literally what Paul is saying here when he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What he's literally saying is, church, do not stay in a state of prolonged anger. He's saying, do not stay or remain, listen, in a state of unforgiveness. All right, that's what he's saying. All right, that's kind of the first reason, is just simply the language. But then the second reason that I believe that he's not literally saying, don't go to sleep and, um, until you uh, are reconciled is just basically on experience with that. Um, you see, married people are laughing because they know exactly where I'm going with this. I, you know, there have been times over the years where I've been in conflict with my wife. We're in an argument. I know that y'all probably think that Jennifer and I never argue, but we do. And it'll be like 11.30 at night. And we're still kind of arguing and we're not reconciled and we aren't even close. And, you know, we were told in premarital counseling, you don't go to bed until you've reconciled. But the problem is we're exhausted. Neither one of us is being quick to listen or slow to speak or slow to anger. And we've found over the years that if we continue just to try to hash things out, that a lot of times things don't get better, but things get worse. And so we've learned just in wisdom over the years that one of the wisest things we can do at that point is just go to sleep. Amen. Just go to bed. Just call time out and go to sleep and then get up in the morning and then, and then have a quiet time for crying out loud and pray, get in the spirit, put on the new nature and then get to the place the next morning where we can actually be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. And so more accurately here, what Paul is saying is not don't go to bed until you're reconciled, but do not remain in your anger towards someone. He's saying this, that one of the ways that you can know, one of the ways that you can know that your righteous anger has now become sinful anger is when you remain in a state of unforgiveness towards somebody else. Um, I've experienced this several times in my life that the Lord has had to work on me. One of the t- earliest times I can remember was when I was 21. Um, I was, uh, was my first youth ministry position that I ever had. Uh, I was in Bryan, Texas, which is near College Station. I was 21. I was a junior in college. There's about 150 people in this church. I had seven kids in my youth ministry, and I was young, and I was stupid, and I had absolutely no idea what to do, but I loved Jesus. And I love those kids and I wanted to see them grow in the Lord. But like so many pastors do in their first churches, and I made a lot of mistakes as a 20-year-old kid, really. I made a ton of mistakes. I was unorganized at the time. I didn't communicate well with, with parents. I didn't communicate well with my pastor. Just was, I was just a mess. And, and one day, I got a call from my pastor. And he asked me to come into his office. And when I walked in the door, there was him and this lady sitting there that was the chairman of the, the youth ministry board. And it was sitting there. And I look back on this and I was so naive because I, I thought, or I, and it really was, the youth ministry was really actually doing really well. We were growing like crazy. We'd grown like seven kids to 50 kids. Kids were getting saved left and right. Students were really growing in their faith. And so I walked in the door naively thinking, sweet, man, they brought me in here because I'm going to get a raise. And so I walked in the door and thinking, this is awesome. I'm going to actually grow in my salary from the 12000 a year I was making at the time. And it's going to be awesome. But then I, re- I realized pretty quickly that that was not the case. This lady over the last year had been making a list of everything that I'd done wrong as a youth pastor. And she began to go one by one really harshly through this list and... and um, 
And I remember looking at my pastor somewhere about number 42 and just looking at him and being like, are, are you going to let her do this? You know, and he kind of gave me this look back like, well, I kind of agree with her. And so she just kept going. And, and then at one point, the part that really, I think, took the wind out of me was she looked at me at one point and said, Matt, I want you to know that you're the worst youth pastor we've ever had at this church. And as a 21-year-old kid that had been pouring his life into these students, that just crushed me. It crushed me. And I came, in all my years, I realized this week, this week it hit me that I've been in ministry 20 years this week. And of all those 20 years of ministry, that is the closest I've ever come to quitting the ministry. Uh, it's the closest I've ever come to just walking away from all of it. This whole thing, the Austin Stone, almost never happened because of that moment. It hurt that badly. Now, I've been hurt worse probably since then, but that's the one that stuck out to me for this reason is, is the Lord showed me, okay, you, you've got to stay in the ministry. So I stayed in the ministry, but I never for a long time got over my anger for that woman. And I, um, I, I moved on and I tolerated her, but I definitely had not forgiven her. And I realized that years later, um, several years later, I was at a different church. I saw her for some reason and we talked and it was, it was cordial. But I, as I sat there and I was talking to this lady, and some of y'all can relate to this. You've, you've got these things going on in your life. You've had these things in your life. But I was sitting there and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I have not forgiven this woman. I can't stand her. I'm still feeling the bitterness. I'm still feeling the hurt from this thing that happened all those years ago. And that's what Paul's talking about. I had let the sun go down on my anger. And the Lord showed me through this verse and through other verses that that's sin. That that is sin. That my long-term unforgiveness towards this woman was just as sinful as what she had done to hurt me and wound me in the first place. And, 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 and Paul is saying here, look, be angry, okay? Be angry, but do not sin and do not stay in a state of prolonged unforgiveness towards somebody. Now, in the next verse, Paul says something fascinating to me. And I didn't know this until this week, what exactly he's saying and the, and the critical nature of what he's saying. But what he says is absolutely critical to us and why you cannot allow bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness to remain in your life. All right, let's look at it together. Verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then watch what he says in verse 27. He says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. Now church, listen real carefully at this. This is the one place in the Bible. This is the one place in the scripture where the Bible explicitly says, if you do this, if you do this, if you remain in a state of unforgiveness towards somebody, if you refuse to forgive somebody, that is the one place in the Bible where the scripture says, if you do it, it will open the door and it will allow Satan into your life. It's the one place in the Bible that explicitly says that. And church, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say that Satan wants to do in your life? Jesus said he wants to kill. You know it. He wants to steal. And he wants to destroy. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is the one sin the Bible explicitly says. You got it in your life. You are just opening the door for Satan to come right on in and do what he does. 
And the problem is what I'm, what I'm found in my own life and in the lives of people that I pastor is that we don't really think about unforgiveness that way. We don't, we don't, we don't look at unforgiveness as seriously as the Lord looks at unforgiveness, but the Bible and the Lord thinks it's a really, really big deal. And think about it. Think about this. Think about if there's a criminal outside the door of your house. If there's a criminal outside the door of your house and you knew that if you opened that door, that he was going to walk in that door and he was going to steal from you, he was going to kill your family, and he was going to destroy your house, would you let him in the door? And the answer to the question is, of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. If you knew that, you would do everything in your power to keep that person outside of your house. You would do everything in your power to keep him outside of the door. And church, what Paul is saying is that you must treat unforgiveness in the same way you would a criminal trying to get in your house. You must treat unforgiveness in the same way that you would a criminal coming to your house because that's what Satan is trying to do through unforgiveness is get in your house and kill, steal, and destroy. And the Bible says that's the one thing that allowed him to do it is unforgiveness. And I'm telling you folks, as a guy who's been doing this thing for a while, it's true. It's true. There is, there is nothing like unforgiveness that allows the enemy to still kill and destroy lives. I've seen it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Friendships ruined. Friendships ruined. Marriages wrecked out, destroyed. Families separated. Churches split in half. All because of bitterness and resentment and people's unwillingness to forgive one another. You got something that happens, some conflict that happens, some sin, some wrong that's done, and it just blows the people up. And at the end of it, you ask them, why, why are you guys still unreconciled? And, and they will say every time, well, it's because of the adultery, it's because of the hurt, it's because of the wrong. When really, when you get down to the root of it, the reason they're unreconciled is not the thing that happened. They're unreconciled because of the unforgiveness that they're unwilling to show one another. Paul says, that's why you can't let the sun go down on your anger. It opens the door. Satan walks in. And some of you in the room today, or maybe even right now in that place, some of you are in that place and you haven't realized it yet because of some past hurt and wound. That, but you're walking in a place in a state of unforgiveness in your heart. Um, and the reason that is, you've been wounded badly. You've been hurt deeply and you love the Lord and and the last thing in the world that you want to do is open the door and let Satan into your life but at the same time the idea of of just completely forgiving this person who's wounded you or hurt you seems impossible to you and if you're in that place if you're like yep I, I do I have some bitterness I have some resentment I have unforgiveness in my heart towards this person, this past person, this coworker, this spouse, this family member, if that's where you're at. I want to, real quickly today, this is a pretty short sermon, I want to give you four ways that the scripture shows us to fight the battle of sinful anger and unforgiveness in our life. Four ways that the Bible gives us to fight sinful anger and unforgiveness in our life. Number one, real quickly, number one, We've got to look at the sin of unforgiveness in the same way that God looks at the sin of unforgiveness. Okay, that's just really step one. 
is that we as, we as believers have to start looking at the sin of prolonged anger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness in the same way that God looks at that sin. And uh, God describes how he sees the sin of prolonged anger in Genesis chapter 4. Don't turn there in your Bibles, just watch this. And watch how God uh, looks at the sin of unforgiveness. In Genesis 4, 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And it says, and Abel also brought um, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So what happens, you got Cain and Abel brothers. They both, we talked about last week, they brought their offerings to the Lord. God liked Cain, or rather Abel's offering. He did not like Cain's offering. And the scripture says right here that Cain became very angry. He became very angry. He was jealous of his brother. And so God looks at Cain and he comes to Cain and this is what he says to him. And, he, and the Lord said to Cain in verse six, he says, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Now I want you to watch verse seven. It's a fascinating verse where God begins to, to reveal to us how he looks at and how God sees the sin of unforgiveness in Cain's life. God looks at Cain in verse 7. He says, Cain, if you do well right here, will you not be accepted? Cain's sitting there. He's seething. He's very angry. And God looks at him and says, hey, man, if you do well right here, I'm going to accept you. I'm going to accept your offering." But then watch what he says. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. You must rule over it, King. How does God, this is crazy. How does God describe the sin of prolonged anger? How does God articulate uh, the danger of the sin of unforgiveness. God compares Cain's sin, church, to a wild animal that is crouching at Cain's door. He says, Cain, you need to understand something. This sin is like a wild animal that is crouching at your door. <clears throat> and then in one of the most haunting parts of the Bible, God looks at Cain and says, Cain, that wild animal that's crouching at your door, it's desire is for you. It's desires for you. God's point is he's saying to Cain, if you don't deal with this sin, if you don't deal with this sin, if you just let this sin hang on, if you let this sin fester, if you leave this sin alone, Cain, it is going to destroy you. And that's exactly what happens. Cain ignores the Lord. He allows himself to remain in his anger, the sun goes down on his anger, he opens the door, Satan comes in, grabs his heart, he murders his brother, and his life is absolutely never the same. It's never the same. So church, if you're here today and you have unforgiveness in your heart right now, you've got to look at it. First and foremost, you've got to start looking at that thing the way God looks at it, which is a wild animal that's crouching in your door that wants to take you out. Okay? And then once you start looking at it the way that God looks at it, then you need to begin to deal with it in the way that God wants you to deal with it. Now, church, how does the Bible say, or what does the Bible say we should do when we have sin in our lives? How are we supposed to deal with sin in our lives? In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, it tells us. This is how you deal with the sin in your life. In Romans 8, 13, it says this. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
That's the consequences. If you live according to the flesh, the scripture says you will die. Sin will destroy you. It says, but, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What did the Bible just say to do? To the wild animal of sin that's crouching at your door that we just learned's desire is to take you out. What does the Bible say to do with it? Scripture says you kill it. You kill it. You don't coddle it. You don't pet it. You don't feed it. You don't let it hang out in your house. You definitely don't invite it in. The scripture says when you seek Sin in your life, you need to understand it's going to kill you. So when you see sin in your life, you destroy it. You, you absolutely put it to death. That's step one. That's step one. If that anger and bitterness and resentment is in you, number one, you've got to look at it the way God looks at it. You've got to deal with it the way God wants you to deal with it. And number two, battling sinful anger and unforgiveness in your heart, not only is to look at it the way God looks at it, but you need to understand the consequences. That's step two. Understand the consequences if you don't treat it the way God wants you to treat it. Okay, so not only, church, does the Bible say that unforgiveness explicitly lets Satan into our lives. Okay, that that would be bad enough. Not only does the scripture say that unforgiveness is like a wild animal that wants to destroy us, but I want you to look at what Jesus says the consequences of unforgiveness are in our hearts. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, watch this. This is what Jesus says, not me. Jesus says, for if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly father will not forgive your transgressions. And that's a hard statement by Jesus right there. You don't hear people preaching on that too often. If you forgive others of their trespasses, your, your heavenly father is going to forgive you. If you refuse to forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly father will not forgive you. Okay, now here's what Jesus is not saying here, and I want you to listen carefully. Jesus is not saying that unforgiveness is an unforgivable sin. That's not what he's saying. But here's what Jesus must then be saying. Jesus is saying that unforgiveness, prolonged, unrepentant unforgiveness is the mark of an unbeliever. That's what he's saying. Prolonged, unrepentant unforgiveness is the mark of an unbeliever. That's the only thing that Jesus can mean here. He's saying that if you refuse to forgive somebody, it must be because you don't understand the forgiveness that has been offered you in Jesus. Church, people that have been forgiven much will forgive much. People that have been offered great grace are going to be the people that give great grace. Jesus is saying that one of the marks of a person that is not saved is a person that refuses to forgive. And so if you have that in your heart today, do not play around with it. Understand the consequences of it. Dig down into that and repent of it right now if it's in your heart. Number one, you got to look at unforgiveness the way that God does. Number two, understand the seriousness and the consequences of it. And number three, a way for you to fight harbored anger and unforgiveness is this. 
It's confession. Confession. Now, confession has two parts. Most people don't know this. Confession has two parts. It's got a horizontal part that most of us think confession is. It's also got a vertical part. Step one to confession of your sin is vertical. It's not horizontal. Step one of confession is you agreeing with God about your sin. Did you know that? Step one of you confessing is not going and telling somebody else that you've sinned. Step one of confession is coming and saying, God, I agree with you about my sin. Okay, first step of confession is saying, God, I believe you that my sin of unforgiveness is just as sinful, Lord, as what this person did to hurt me. That's step one of confession. Okay, you can go tell people about your sin all day long, but if you don't really agree with God about it, you haven't truly repented and confessed. My, 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 one of my first steps of me truly forgiving that woman, which I have, one of the first steps was not only what I've talked about, seeing unforgiveness the way God sees it, understanding the consequences of it, but also really believing in my heart of hearts that my sin of unforgiveness and prolonged anger was just as bad and just as sinful as what that woman did to me in that office to begin with that caused my unforgiveness. Okay, that's step one. It's vertical. Agree with God. Step two is horizontal. You go, you go, you go speak it. You go and you find someone, a friend, a spouse, and you come and you tell them, the, the Bible says, talk about it. I have the sin of unforgiveness in my heart towards this person. You speak it, you confess it. Maybe you need to go to the person that you um, are harboring the resentment to. And you need to come to them and say, hey, I want you to know that I've sinned against you, that I, have, I had unforgiveness in my heart towards you. And one, I want to confess that sin to you. And two, I want to ask for your forgiveness for me sinning against you by not forgiving you. And the scripture says, church, that there is power in that. There is power in confession, vertical, horizontal confession. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. It says the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. I don't know about you, but man, if you're in that place today and you have unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, wouldn't it be amazing to just be healed to that? Aren't you tired of walking around with that burden in your life? Aren't you tired of walking around with that kind of junk? The Bible says that there's a way that you can be freed from that stuff. You confess it. They pray, you agree with God. Confess it. Pray. And you will be healed. Okay, so that's the third way. And I want to give you the last way here. And probably the most important way, child of God, that you're supposed to fight harbored anger and unforgiveness. Here's number four and last one. It's to remember the forgiveness that you've been given through Jesus. Okay, if, you, if you're at a place today where you're like, yep, I'm holding bitterness and anger and resentment towards this person. I'm struggling to forgive this person. One of the most, pow- the most powerful thing you could ever do is, is to stop and remember and think about and ponder the forgiveness that you've been given through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the key to having the power to forgive others. And in Ephesians 4.31 Paul says this, he says, let all bitterness, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, that's the word prolonged anger, and clamor and slander be put away from you. Let all of it be put away from you 
along with malice in verse 32. He says, be kind to one another. Be tender hearted to one another, forgiving each other. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's key. Paul doesn't say forgive these people that have had all this malice and anger towards you and slander and hurt towards you because that's just what Christians do. He doesn't say, hey, forgive these people because we want to be nice people. He says that we are to be tenderhearted people of forgiveness because Christ has forgiven us. That's why. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. To be a Christian means that you forgive the inexcusable. Why? Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. <coughs> and you say, but Matt, you don't know what this person did to me. Matt, you don't know how this person hurt me. Matt, you don't know how this person ruined my life. How in the world am I supposed to forgive the inexcusable in them? And the answer is very simple. Because the Lord has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Okay? When you did not deserve it, and when you had not earned it, Christ forgave all your sins. And one of the things that I use on a consistent basis, one of the stories that I use to remind me of the gospel, because they remind me of the truth that when I had not earned it, when I did not deserve it, the Lord forgave me in Jesus all of my sin. All of my sin, there is no record of wrong, is the story that Jesus told about the son who came to his dad and said, Dad, I am tired of living in your house. I don't want to be here with you anymore. I want to leave. I want to go to a different place. But God, or rather, Dad, before I go, would you just please give me my inheritance? And he looked at his dad basically and said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. And the father, in an unbelievable act of kindness, gives his son all of his inheritance. And, and Jesus said, this boy, this son, went to some other city and he squandered every dime of the inheritance his fathers gave him, Jesus said, on prostitutes. Didn't lose it in a bad business deal. He spent all his money on <coughs> prostitutes. And when he had absolutely nothing left, he had no choice but to come back home and let me just stop right there. Church, if there's ever been a person that had the right to harbor resentment, it was that father. If there's ever been a person that deserved to be resentful, it's that father. If there ever has been a person that was justified in not forgiving someone, it was that father. And if there was ever a person that did not deserve and had not earned his father's forgiveness, it was the son. But Jesus said, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw his son walking down the road. And in the midst of his son's sin, and in the midst of his son's shame, the, the, Jesus said the father had compassion on him. And he hiked up his, his skirts, his robes, and he ran. 
And he wrapped his arms around his son and he completely forgave his son for every single thing that he'd ever done. And by the way, church, who does the son represent in that story? It's us. Jesus is telling a story and you and I are the ones that represent the son in that story. This, this, this son that completely and absolutely blew it. It was neck deep in sin and shame, did unthinkable things to his father. Who does that son represent? It's you and it's me. Who does God represent in the story? Or rather, who does the father represent? He represents God. Church, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our shame, when we did not deserve it and when we had not earned it, when we were still a long way off, our father ran to us and wrapped us in his arms and forgave the inexcusable in you and me. It's the gospel. We don't let, as believers, as people who have been given grace, as people that have been forgiven, we don't let the sun go down on our anger because the Lord did not let the sun go down on his anger for us. And when you remember that, when that hits you, it won't be hard to forgive. Church, let's pray together. As your heads are bowed today, we're about to sing a song here in just a second. It's called The King of Love. And there's a great line in it. It says, in sin and shame came mercy's flood. In sin and shame came mercy's flood. I run to you, O King of Love. And I want you to think today, before anything else, I want, you to, I want you to think about the gospel. I want you to think about the cross. I want you to think about when you were in your sin, when you were in your shame, the Lord ran to you. He found you, and he forgave the inexcusable in you. And in light of that today, if there's somebody that you need to forgive, if there's somebody that you... Um, need to ask for their forgiveness, today is the day to do that. Today is the day, repent of it. That sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you. Let it go. Remember the gospel. Father, we thank you for the cross. God, we thank you for this amazing picture of when we didn't earn it, when we hadn't deserved it, you ran to us forgave us of all our sins. Let us be people that reflect that in this world. Father, there are many that are hurting today that think it's impossible for them to forgive. I pray that you would give them the power today to be freed from that sin. Gotta ask that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together. Let's sing to him. Let's respond to the Lord.